Hi, this is Alistair Stewart. And this is Brock Wilbur. And you're listening to Carrying Into the Void, the podcast where we get together, tell each other about a weird or dark story we've heard, and then try and find the silver lining or flip it into something that, while possibly not positive, will at least be productive. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brock. How's your week been? Boy, howdy. Yeah. It's always such a fun question uh, because time is meaningless. But uh, yeah, uh, my, my week has every day has been a week this week. And uh, every and every week has been a month. I, we had some friends over yesterday and I was describing a thing that happened. And I was like, yeah, you know, the, two years ago when that thing happened and my wife gave me this look and said that was three months ago. And I sincerely I, I there's no world that I thought it was not in 2020. And I was like, oh, we wow, somebody really did hit the pause button and <laughs> or, yeah. or, or in, in, in music effects, just sort of that drawn out slow down, like, Wah. so uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There was, there was a spread there. Uh, how was your week? <laughs> I, I had a long talk with a dietician this week, which was, you know, granola, right? On bad yeah, granola, I've heard of it. like the kind of granola you buy by the sack, not the fun sort, <laughs> which often has gorp in it. It was basically that for two hours. It was... You know, it's very important that you count calories, but don't pay too much attention to them. And you shouldn't eat carbs after six o'clock. And exercise doesn't really do anything. But at the same time, you have to be very careful about all of this. And also be kind to yourself and forgive yourself. And I was like, you are doing nothing to aid my ongoing belief that there isn't an authoritarian structure on the planet that works right now, Mom. I might put in the content warning here because I think that we're going to mutually get into something here. This might be our sharing and caring segment at the top of the show, but I'm just going to say, I think we're going to talk about some some body issue stuff and some weight issue stuff. And if that's not uh, up your alley, uh, maybe give it a fast forward here. Um, I, I have been on a journey lately of... Um, dealing with some some body issues and and a lot of stuff around the science of that uh and uh i don't know do you listen to the podcast maintenance phase i am about to start is it good it is incredible and basically uh if you don't know it's uh it, there are two hosts and every week uh or two they get together and they tear apart a different usually it's somebody's book about a different like field of health and they're just like this is just garbage science but it's it's uh, yeah it's everything from diet books throughout history that have been huge things to like uh, my favorite episode of the show is is about the national epidemic of sleep loss and this guy that made himself the face of sleep science and absolutely every word he's ever said at any of his mini ted talks is just completely made up and no one ever called him on it uh this show actually caused a bit of a ruckus in the science community but um a, a lot of their things like wind up boiling down to a lot of stuff about why we as a culture treat things they they do a movie club each month uh so uh if you can if you can stand it because it's one of the funniest things i've ever heard <laughs> and also the bleakest uh they do a movie review of jack black's shallow hal uh which is uh just one of the worst it, it was so bad that me and the wife had to sit down and watch it after listening to an hour and a half like the podcast is longer than the movie itself and we were like we really must go revisit that to see just indeed indeed how bad it is but it is uh, a wildly productive thing i mean they they even take down some of my heroes in a way that i'm like oh it's good to know that michael pollan was absolutely up his own butt about that thing um, but like, uh, there's a lot of it that's just like, yeah, all the science about like calorie counting and, and the things like that, it's nothing, it's total nothingness, which is somebody that like 
has a calorie counter tracker thing and uses it a lot at, at various periods. And, and, and it's very funny that this came up today because my uh, sort of self-caring into the void this week was going to be about tracking. Uh, because there's a lot of stuff health-wise and otherwise that I've been tracking lately. And I don't know that the science of the food part of it means anything. It's just sort of information for me. But it has been a nice reminder in like the world of like writing and, and creating and other productive stuff that did you know that when you track that you're making progress, you do a lot less of in your head being like, I'm a failure and I have accomplished nothing. Exactly. I, I look back at this week and the number of pages I finished on a project and I'm like, in, in my heart, I, I, I accomplished negative five pages. I feel like I just cut things. And instead, I was like, oh, I added like nearly 100 pages to that thing, just like sort of on the side. And I'm like, I'm, I'm getting to throw myself little parties of celebration for, for improvements and for tracking things. So it's already this was going to be a weird discussion about like, what do we track and why? And why do we sometimes stop doing it? And like, it it is overwhelmingly positive on some level, I feel. Um yeah, so, uh, yeah, if, if you're the sort of kid that ever, uh, you know, has to process going to a, a fat camp or a nutrition trainer as a child uh, or somebody that's uh, struggled with it at literally any other point in time uh, or uh, is just, you know, past 25 and you are the sort of person that a doctor will tell you that every problem is something stemming from the fact that you weigh more than you should um, – yeah, uh, maintenance phase is incredible, but also uh, modern science has has truly failed all of us. And uh, the number that you see on a scale corresponds to absolutely nothing. Um, the only thing that they should be able to weigh is the power of what you have. Uh, and being powerful is pretty important and being happy is pretty, pretty good. Uh, outside of that, none of this means anything. So, so what kind of nonsense was lobbed your way? <laughs> Oh, all sorts. By the way, the temptation to, to listen to, to you spitting this eloquent, compassionate, wonderful language and then going, all right, that's a show, everybody. Thank you. Very high. <laughs> to become maintenance phase, this just becomes you and me talking about workouts and how bad we felt because somebody said something that we know isn't real. Yeah, that's that <laughs> feels like it tracks for the audience. <laughs> and of this left on version. Uh, I dealt with the first two years of the ongoing pandemic by uh, putting on quite a lot of weight. Uh, I put on about 130 pounds and this and the largely sedentary lifestyle I had because I didn't want to go outside because I was pretty certain outside was going to try and kill me. The air is poison. So yeah, I, I gained a chunk of weight and I developed edema in both of my legs. Edema is the situation where basically your legs be, can't put, can't push fluid. It sounds gross. I know it got a little gross on one side for a while. And I went to my local GP, and he said, congratulations, you have edema. We can deal with it. Um, and they gave me water pills, which meant I peed like a racehorse for about six months, <laughs> several times a day. You, you, you ever had that situation where you've gone to the bathroom for so long, you think, I should have brought a book. It was one of those. Somehow, I've, I've never heard of that medication, but water pills has incredible British mouthfeel to me. Doesn't it? I would say, here you go, have this digestive. What does it help? Digesting. <laughs> Um, so the, the edema's actually largely gone away. One leg is resolutely human-sized. Okay. The other leg is about three-quarters human-sized. I, I have some skin damage on my lower left leg, and I have to wear what's called a ready wrap most of the time. And ready wrap is, is actually, it's a very, very cool, very basic piece of equipment. It's basically a bandage made of six Velcro straps. And you wear a stocking under it, 
and you strap it on and it's 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 compression it's basically to encourage the fluid to leave your leg and it does a really good job um it's a little uncomfortable sometimes and uh that's about it i mean i can fly internationally we're going to italy in a couple of months um i'm possibly going to the us later this year but that's looking quite unlikely so in terms of kind of quality of life impactfulness the edema's maybe like a 0.5 to a 1 out of 10 maybe a 2 on a bad day the weight stayed and i've been big my whole life uh, like I was the kid who was stood next to the teacher in the class photo in kindergarten because I was 5'10 by the time I was that point. I played on my school rugby team because I was drafted <laughs> because we showed up for an open day. And I remember that the school, school rugby teacher who hand on a stack of fucking Bibles three years later when we were coming back from having been thoroughly drubbed by St. Bastard's School for Future Tories or whatever the fucking public school we were playing was called. In the middle of this pissing rainstorm, in the middle of the Manx countryside, stops the bus, goes, right lads, I'll see you tomorrow, gets out and runs out across the fields. And this bunch of pasty doughboy children are all watching him go, go, he's a Terminator. He used the T-1000 in Welsh form. This is insane. Um, so, yeah, I played rugby uh, throughout school. Technically, I am a rugby international. I, I played for my nation. It's just my nation is 30 kilometers wide. Um, I've done judo. I've done tai chi. I've done a very small amount of Thai boxing, most of which was a very, very nice firefighter pointing out all the ways he could hurt me and then not doing it. I've run. You know, one of my day jobs at the moment is is writing fitness-related stuff. I, I know this field. I've had to know this field because I've lived in it my whole life. Uh, when I was 10, I was put in hospital by my parents to lose weight. They didn't tell me that was what was happening at the oh time. Oh, my God. And I sat down with this very nice doctor who said, Now, Alistair, what don't you like to eat? And I told him, and that was what every evening meal was for a week. And uh, three days in, one of my parents had an attack of such guilt that they actually broke me out and we sat in the car park and ate soda and crisps for lunch because I was so sad. And I'm very angry <laughs> about all of that, probably starting with that incident, to be honest, down through my entire life, because the simple truth of the matter is that the Western world relies on fat people and it also hates us. And that all kind of came to a head. Because, like I say, uh, I had I put on a chunk of weight during the pandemic, and this week just gone, I went off for a couple of appointments to discuss possible treatment approaches, specifically bariatric surgery. Bariatric surgery is what happens when they they kind of close off a part of your stomach or modify things so that you get fuller faster. Basically, it's kind of scary. Uh, there are two ways to reverse it. There are about there are two ways that are reversible. There are about four that aren't. And I'm pretty certain I don't need it, but I was, I've been encouraged to start down the bariatric treatment path because there are other options available on it. It's actually called tier three, tier four. Tier four is surgery, tier three is we work with trained professionals to help you out. And that's what I was aiming for. So I rocked up on Monday with my partner and we were told that we would have three appointments. One was with a doctor, one was with a dietitian, one was with a therapist. The therapist appointment will happen at some point in the future. But we had the doctor's appointment and the, the dietitian appointment. And it was inconceivably frustrating. <laughs> and it, it went for a really long time. Um, the doctor's appointment was fine. It was basically her going, we're really sorry. And me going, yeah, I know, me too. 
Um, <laughs> and the dietitian's appointment was two hours, which opened with her going, so calorie counting doesn't work. I was like, okay. <laughs> so it's really important that you can lose as much weight as possible before this operation that will help you lose weight. And I'm like, I'm sorry, the what now? And it, it kind of accelerated from there. Um, basically what it boiled down to was you have to keep a very close eye on all of this, but none of it's actually precise. No one knows how to do any of it. Um, the idea that there is a number that you can spit out of a TDEE calculator, which is your ideal daily caloric intake, is, and this is language I use very advisedly, actual honky jive. It just doesn't work. <laughs> There's a number that's kind of there. There's like a loose target to hit. That's about it. And it's different for everybody. The idea of, you know, eat more proteins than, than sugars and fats, yeah, not so much, apparently. Um, apparently, it's a bad idea to eat carbs after six, which, as someone who has four different kinds of bread, maybe 15 feet from me as I record this, was quite hard to hear, I'm not going to lie. And it was massively frustrating, because like I say, I've engaged with this my whole life. I've not had a choice. Yeah, you know, I'm a fat nerd. A fat nerd who was a teacher's kid. Ask me how much I was fucking bullied at school. I dealt with it as best I can. And I know I dealt with it as best I can and continue to. But no one knows anything. That kind of ties back to what Brock was saying. I mean, the thing, the, the, the number that we are so often belabored around the head with is BMI, Body Mass Index. Look into the origin of that. Look into who that, was de that number was derived from. Note all the ethnic groups that weren't involved in that study, for a start. I'm not saying it was racist as shit. I am saying Colonel Sanders would nod approvingly at it. And also, it is <laughs> laughably inaccurate. And this is one of those very, very few lines in the sand where I will get fighting. Because every now and again, I talk online about how BMI is inaccurate, and people will go, well, no, it's not. Like, yes, it fucking is, and I can prove it with maths. Not just American math, maths, English maths. I will bring more than one. And what it boils down to is my ideal BMI would mean I would need to lose a limb. Uh, I, I would literally need to lose so much weight that I would need a limb removed, and it would be one I'm fond of. So the impossible target that we're all given is impossible. That's what I learned on Monday, and that was incredibly difficult. After a full day at the hospital, what did you have for dinner? Uh, oh, I had pizza. Because <laughs> because my partner is an amazing woman and who sat in this meeting with me, and we both stumbled out of it after two hours, thoroughly traumatized, and she went, what do you, you want to go for dinner? And I was like, pizza. And she was like, I was just going to suggest that. So we had pizza and pasta and processed our emotions through carbs. And there were some useful things to come out of it. You know, the an awful lot of it comes down to awareness. And the thing which I was talking to with Brock before we went on air, which is fucking exhausting, is once you become aware of subconscious procedures and desires within your brain, you can start to change them. But you also have to be aware of the fact that that awareness itself costs you. It costs you about 2% of your processing cycles in any given day. And I don't think there's a single one of us anywhere on this planet that isn't already working at 97 to 99% processing cycles all the fucking time. So you get really tired, and you get really pissed off, and suddenly the thought of going, you know what, I'm going to eat a biscuit, because that's going to fucking show them. Or a cookie, American, bless them. 
becomes really attractive. And sometimes you do that. And the thing which I'm learning is sometimes you do that, and that's okay. And the other thing I'm learning is no one knows anything. And the other thing I'm learning is I have no capacity to trust myself in this situation because I've grown up in a society which goes, oh, it's great, fat people are really smart and jolly, but we hate you. And it's really easy to be taught to hate yourself. I hate myself, I'm fucking great. But I also have to be constantly aware of the fact that it's really easy to go, yeah, I suck. And that's tiring too. And it won't always be tiring, but right now, pretty tiring. I am still stuck on what I think might be the the best summation I've ever heard of of the the food me- medical complex, which was just simply saying, a doctor asked me what foods I didn't like, and then that's all the foods that they gave me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's, I think, what this all, all boils down to, because at the end of the day, they can say whatever they want about what their numbers say, but you spar with a black belt, and you go to the gym, like, way more than I do. I, I think that you're a powerhouse, so, like, <laughs> none of this means anything. <laughs> You you know what you are and you know what you're capable of and you know that you're happy. Like that's it's an it's an insane world and it's an insane system and no one knows what they're doing. <laughs> right. This is so fucking ridiculous, but it comes down to kindness. It comes down to when no establishment organization or structure treats you with the kindness you deserve, it is your responsibility to treat yourself with it. And you gotta do that how you do it, you know? I mean, when we are done recording today, one of the things I'm going to do is I will go and buy several shiny discs because I have a moderately well-paid job these days, which perpetuates my retail therapy. And I need some fucking retail today. And that works for me. And find what works for you that's good and do that. And fuck them. Sometimes you got to eat the fuck you pizza. Sometimes you got to eat the fuck you pizza. All right, I'm going to put that as the the end there on our our discussion of 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 bodies and doctors. No more doctors today. Uh, it's funny you should mention that. Oh no! <laughs> do you have a story for us today? Yes, I do. I have a story for you about genuinely my favorite historical figure. I would like very much to introduce you to Andreas Vesalius, two fisted body snatcher for science. Andreas was born in the 1500s. He was a doctor, he studied medicine, or rather he tried to. Because the interesting thing about medicine at this point was that it was basically declarative. It was based on, largely on a textbook by Galen, uh, who was pretty clear, had just dissected a couple of pigs and gone, yeah, looks about right. And almost none of it was hands-on. You would literally go to an operating theatre, sit there and take notes, whilst an old guy with a corpse would go, and this is over here, or often just read from the book you had in front of you. It's untenable. It was an untenable situation, because without that fundamental knowledge of how we're built, how do you repair something when it's broken? And this was the situation Vesalius found himself in. He was gifted. He was bored. He was brilliant. And he was an idiot because he started stealing bodies. And yes, this is absolutely a do you want Frankenstein? Because this is how you get Frankenstein kind of situation. The end result of all of this is that Andreas Vesalius became a man, to borrow a phrase from Liam Neeson's Finest Hour, with a particular set of skills. He was both a qualified doctor and a really very successful grave robber. Basically think Tyler Durden in a rough, but just embodying a very different set of toxic male impulses. (laughs) The thing is... He actually taught these skills in classes, because he was qualified enough that after a while he was a lecturer. 
So you have this guy who basically has this benevolent and frankly rather squishy conspiracy of body snatching and illegal anatomical research going on within primary medical organizations. This got ghoulish. There are apocryphal but reliable reports of grave robbing epidemics wherever Andreas taught because he would teach these folks how to do this, then they'd go out and nick corpses. Oh, also, um, this was such an endemic at this point, an endemic situation at this point. Most graveyards had guard dogs. So you genuinely have this Indiana Jones-type situation, where you have v Vesalius and his grave robbers, I choose to believe, throwing cartoon-sized T-bones at over-enthusiastic <laughs> bulldogs, and then dragging corpses out of the ground and legging it. Even better... This is pretty confirmed. I've seen this from a couple of sources. A couple of Versailles' students found themselves with a corpse on campus in the wrong place as, ca as classes kicked off for the day. This was a crime. You could do serious prison time. There were very, very serious consequences for grave robbing. So they dressed it in clothes and they poured alcohol <laughs> oh, no. over it. And they put oh, one no. arm over each of their shoulders and made their way through the heavily supervised hallway towards the room where the corpse needed to be, yelling, Ah, oh, he really tied one on last night. And it worked. Oh, no. They weakened Bernie's dead. Oh, no. Probably wrong and maybe censored in certain parts of the world uh, is Volotpat Vestibulum at Bernie's. <laughs> In no way could that be wrong. That sounds absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> now, the weird thing is, Andreas actually repented a bit in later life. He said, I shall not advise students to observe where someone has been buried or urge them to make note of the diseases of their teacher's patients so they may secure the bodies. Which is a little bit, I've decided I should be on the pardon list if that's still a thing. But hey, he did some good. <laughs> The, the man was instrumental in revolutionizing our study of the human body, including the first ever scientific description of the hymen, amongst many others. The thing is, I've actually... I, I feel he is an overlooked historical hero slash villain. I've actually written outlines for Doctor Who adventures featuring him. And as far as I'm concerned, it's only a matter of time before the Indiana Jones of grave robbing gets his moment in the TARDIS. I just figure they should probably check his pockets before they let him in. I mean, inevitably, the Doctor winds up finding him in his lab because uh, the, he's stumbled on and is dissecting a Dalek or, of course. or something like that. Why is it yelling at me? Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that seems like an overlooked hero villain in history. Like, And and he gets to get the hero villain status because at least, A, he is a doctor, but B, uh, he wasn't Burke and Hare murdering people to sell to medical universities for the bodies. So, like... Yeah, at least he got something out of it. Right. <laughs> and wasn't doing murders. <laughs> right. I mean, there are stories of him talking to, pay to students going, find people in nursing homes and wait. <laughs> Look, that's just practical advice. But at least he told them to wait, you know? Do you have a carrying into the void to go with this? Oh, I do. I do. Nothing we want to create, nothing we want to do is easy. It sometimes seems. The world is a graveyard of coffins locked beneath metal frameworks, guarded by dogs almost as hungry as we are. Stasis enforced by those depending on our stagnation for their nourishment. They are wrong. They know they are. <laughs> 
One day soon, they will be made to care that they are wrong, and the catharsis of confrontation, the desire to stare our intellectual and cultural foes down, just across from that great noodle joint in the marketplace of ideas, is so overwhelming. We are bent double under injustice. We are bent double under discrimination. Every day when they don't bleat about how oppressed they are after literal decades in power, they stare at us, smirk, and say, what are you going to do, hit us? Sometimes that's the only choice. Sometimes that's the best choice. Sometimes when we're supremely lucky, we get the opportunity to just reprogram the test, so it is just barely possible for us to win. And to do that, sometimes we have to get our hands dirty. Not the bloody knuckle dirt of confrontation, but the soil and loam-filled fingernails of unearthing the truth they are too stupid or too cowardly to look in the eyes. On those occasions, take bolt cutters. Feed the dog something other than yourself. Remember, it's not their fault either. On those occasions, you will exhume the rotten foundations of this world we are all forced to live in, and you will understand them more than your foes can ever conceive. On those occasions, you can and will beat them with science, with understanding, with courage, and with the compassion that comes from knowing the dogs aren't just after you, they're after us all. And the best way to beat them is to get them better masters. Yes. Yes. I felt that one in the chest. Thank you for that. Thanks, dude. I, I love Andreas. I think I actually got one over the wire. I did some work on the original version of the new Doctor Who RPG, which is it's like one of those in, misnomers like military intelligence or jumbo shrimp. You know, the, the first edition of the new one. Um, I did a bunch of adventures for that, and I'm sure one of them was Andreas. I have to go back and check. One day, I'll get him in there. One day. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. So, do you have something for us today? I do. Uh, so this is a story about grave robbing. Um, <laughs> oh boy. Um, nice. So, so uh, a funny thing happened uh, this week, uh, which is that um, they figured out where and when the Black Plague started. Black Plague, of course, uh, which uh, this article introduces as uh, the greatest killer of all time. And I'm like, that's really weird to consider, like, the Black Plague, like a serial killer, like, look, yeah, there was Jack the Ripper, but also the plague put up some incredible numbers over over an extended period, and no one really ever caught that guy. So, <laughs> uh, some some scientists figured out uh, that the plague started in 1338 in the Tian Shan Mountains in Central Asia, uh, and the reason that they figured this out is that they uh, were checking out a set of graveyards in the area and the graves had all been explored in like the 1880s by a different science team. So most of the bodies had been like removed and examined by a 200 year old like set of scientists. So like, so what, what they have left are like some random pieces of bone for each one, the headstones. And they did manage to find the scientists' notes from the 1880s expedition. Oh, my God. So they had to work through those notes and then translate a bunch of uh, Syrian language-like headstones. Uh, and they managed to then use various uh, scanning techniques to examine the RNA and the DNA of the bones. And they sort of rebuilt uh, the entirety of the cemetery. And in 1338 and 1339, this cemetery 
had more action than like any cemetery in the world for the size of its population, just like everyone. And as they looked into what was left in the DNA, they found the RNA strands of what we consider to be probably the earliest version of the Black Death uh, of that plague. Uh, and uh, so they're like, yeah, it kind of started in this village. We're not exactly sure what started it, but it started here in this remote mountain village and then just worked its way down. And they're, they're trying to figure out, they're like, did these people trade with another group? Like, where was the closest bit of civilization? And there's not much around. So it's like, in my head, it's just one kid was like, I'm going off on Rumspringa. <laughs> uh, and he just brought it with him to the rest of the world. There was a fantastic quote near the end of this uh, where Johannes Krauss of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology said, uh, just like COVID, the Black Death was an emerging disease at the start of a huge pandemic, and it would last for some 500 years. And I'm like, phrasing on that, man. It sounds like you're saying that this will last for five. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you do study this for a living. That's kind of bleak, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I do see the parallels, but don't say that this is going to last for 500 years. Like, these two, Black Death, uh, COVID, these are peas in a pod. Like, they ain't going nowhere. So, I don't know. I found that fascinating that uh, amidst all the other things that we could be looking at in terms of pandemics, they were like, I don't know, 1338, we were checking out this this graveyard. This is This is it. This is ground zero. That's so cool and very weird. It's very weird, and, and I imagine it must be very strange to spend your life being like, look, I just got to know, who did this? Whose fault was this? Was it Greg? Was it Greg, in the, Greg from the mountains? I always, the, I had a bad feeling about him when he came to town, was a little shifty, a little coffee. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we found this gravestone. What does it say? It translates as, my bad. Uh, in Latin, it's fuck you pizza. I, I don't know. I <laughs> so, so here's my carrying into the void. Um, where do we even begin? Or more accurately, where will they think you began? Sure, everyone knows the story of you. How you've hung over the land for centuries and how tales of the experiences others had with you could last for a millennia. You really gave them something to talk about, something to write home about. Think of yourself in those terms. Think of your life. Think about your life and how it might settle over the world like a weighted blanket. And how, should it suit your fancy, the blanket could burst into flames at any time. They're going to spend the rest of their lives wondering where you came from. How did a force so unearthly and powerful simply appear one day and then refuse to ever play by anyone else's rules or to surrender for any reason? It matters not what they think about how all of this set off, but it, what it matters is when is the point that you decide you're ready to become what we always knew you could be? Where did you begin? When did you begin? And why is it today, right now, exactly where you are standing? I love that. Good work, sir. <laughs> Also, what I love about it is that, like, it's also pointless. Like, I, I, I don't know what the... It's like, yeah, we figured out this village. Cool, what do we do with that? Yeah, we don't know. But we, we solved our piece of the puzzle. <laughs> like, it's up to everyone else now to make that make any sense. <laughs> you see, I, I kind of have two immediate responses to that. The first is that, you know, I choose to believe that one of the team went, all right, life's work finished. I quit. Yes. <laughs> Goes home. Like, 
Did you have a good day, honey? Yeah, I found out where the Black Death started from. So what are you going to do now? Uh, Lego. Yeah, Lego. <laughs> and I, I would like to think that there is kind of complex mathematical modeling of the sort that you would imagine Doctor Strange successfully doing, just in a much smugger way, where you would be able to map on that kind of path to establish disease vectors now and establish research, so you could maybe get some idea of likely starting points for it. I remember years and years ago, because I was hilariously fun kid, um, I, I read Crisis in the Hot Zone when I was about 15, which... Oh my god, me too! Oh no! <laughs> god, this is just a, another episode about our parallel life stories. I love this. <laughs> so you, you... See, there's, there needs to be a vector for the kind of childhood that leads people in different continents to winding up hosting the same sort of podcast. <laughs> that, that fucking that, book that was is, the is, real plague podcasting. <laughs> that fucking book is the reason why I, I am I successfully broke a vampire LARP once. Um I I went to university in, in York in the UK and the live action role playing community there was let's do vampire live action in this lecture hall. And it was basically just like a different one every week. And there was one where the poor, the poor fucking guy was like, oh, well, the plot is there's this mysterious new disease that's been released amongst the, the, the blood pool in York, and we're trying to work out who's done this. By the way, if you ever want to make any given vampire player very sad, uh, ask them to do the math on how sustainable the um, feeding population of the city where their campaign is set is, because I promise you none of them work. Uh, York was a city with a hundred thousand people, uh, or the, a, rather with eighty-eight thousand people. Um, the metric at that point in Vampire was a population of one hundred thousand would support one vampire. So, and the oh no! So the average size of these games was about fifteen people, and and you know I always imagine these Yorkshire vampires meeting friends from other cities and them going, "So how do you feed?" Like very carefully. <laughs> Mostly on Dave, he's very obliging, you know. But this initial campaign was like, oh well, there's this mysterious disease, and, and we don't know what's going on. And here are some clues, and and I I was for some reason, I think the character was literally described as Dominic Toretto, but a virologist, which is basically the last place those movies can go anyway. And I was like, okay, so we've got to establish some parameters here. Here are the four levels of biohazard safety as depicted in Crisis in the Hot Zone. And I wrote them down, and I could visibly see the storyteller going, I have wasted my life. <laughs> and uh, we, we We're dealt fun with... at parties. Just we... fun at parties. Exactly. We dealt with that mess in like a week and a half. It was great. Oh, and that's that's exactly where this episode ends. That This was, this was a perfect one. Go ahead and take us out. <laughs> fantastic thank you so much for listening folks uh, it has been an absolute pleasure if you possibly can and if you want to get some amazing looking t-shirts and or posters please check out our brother jordan over at void merch who just has a ridiculous array of amazing stuff over there including for this very show we will see you again if you can please leave a review on one of the podcast services that you choose they really do help people find the show thank you to will for editing all of these thank you for making us sound better than we sound here i appreciate you Will. we appreciate you Will, you, uh, you uh, actual sorcerer. Brock, if you want to say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, folks. We will Please follow me on Twitter at Alistair Stewart so we can all survive that hell site together. I'm at Brock Wilbur. <laughs> and remember, keep your hearts dark and true and your teeth sharp and many. And we'll see you next time in the void. 
拜拜拜拜。<笑>